Delighted that you're here, and I hope you've got your Bible with you for us to study together about things that have to do with having homes and families that are pleasing to God. This morning, I mentioned the fact that the church in Columbia, College View, where Greg Gwynn preaches, is having a community Bible study. They've asked me to lead tomorrow night and Tuesday night on family and parenting concerns in a modern world, and thus, that's why I'm presenting this material here. You would be invited, but you'll be hearing the same material, but you would be encouraging to them if you're present there tomorrow or Tuesday evening. And so this morning we looked at the family in crisis. Tonight we're going to look at parenting as God directs. This morning we talked about the challenges that are present for godly families. And we talked about why those come about, what's the cause of all of those challenges, and then how to work through those challenges. Tonight we want to talk about parenting as God would direct that to be. How do you do that and what challenges do we face? Well, as it becomes obvious, I think, as we present material on the home and the family, there seems to be a greater interest in raising children than in marriage and the family within itself and the family crisis. While there are families that claim to be godly, may have a crisis in the marriage, to say the least, they want their children to be the children that God would be pleased with. There are extreme attitudes when it comes to rearing children. But that simply means some have the attitude and act as if there's nothing to it. They have children and they go about rearing their children as if there's nothing to it. I mean, what could be hard about this? Everything's going to be okay and everything's turning out all right. The other extreme is acting as if it's almost impossible. There's no way to raise your children to be right and to do a good job raising your children. It's an impossible task and neither of those extremes are correct. We can avoid those extremes and still think that it's really, really hard. We may not think it's impossible. We may not think there's nothing to it, but we may think it's really, really hard to raise children. You'll hear people say things like, it's so hard to raise children today. Those who've already reared their children may say something like, I'd hate to be raising my kids in today's world. And perhaps you've said that, that I've raised my children, but I wouldn't want to be raising them in today's world. Well, would you rather raise them in a time like Abraham? Or maybe a time like Noah, would that be better, you think? Or maybe the time of Joshua, would that even be better? Or maybe the time of Christ? Or maybe the time of Paul, would, would those be better time periods in rearing children where things are much better in society and culture is much better? And I think you would recognize the answer to the question. However we view the question, we must admit there are many challenges to rearing children. And so if you've already reared your children, you know there are challenges. If you're yet to rear your children, you, know, you need to know that there are challenges that are ahead. And so our question is, what well, does God's word offer any helps with reference to rearing our children? Two things we're going to notice tonight. Here's the first. Let's talk about challenges of parenting in a corrupt world. And that is, what are some of the challenges we face in rearing our children while we're in the midst of a corrupt world as we established this morning? Well, first of all, the child's will has to be molded and shaped. And that's a challenge within itself if there were not any outside pressures upon us. The child's will must be molded and shaped. A child cannot be left to himself. Let's turn in our Bibles. If you don't have an Old Testament, perhaps there's one close by. We're going to be looking several times at the book of Proverbs. And let me footnote to say that when my children were small and trying to raise my children, no book was more helpful to me 
in rearing children than a study of the book of Proverbs. And so if you're embarking upon raising children or thinking about that, I encourage you to delve into the book of Proverbs and read it and reread it and reread it. And when you get through with that, then start over and reread it again. Proverbs 29 now, and in verse 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings his mother to shame. What I'm learning from that is you can't just have a child and leave them to themselves and they'll raise themselves, but their will must be molded and shaped. The New American Standard 95 renders this, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. In other words, a child that gets to do pretty much whatever he wants and his will is not molded and shaped brings shame to the parents because of the lack of training. Shaping the will affects the future life of the child and ultimately their eternity. And what I mean by that is that as you show, shape and mold the will of the child, that affects their adulthood, the kind of adults they will be. But ultimately, it shapes their eternity, and so that's why we must be shaping their will and molding their will. That's so important because you only have a short window of time to get the job done. You think, well, we've got 18 years to mold and shape the child uh, before they leave home or before they become a, an adult themselves, and so we've got 18 years. You don't have 18 years to fully shape and mold the child. And here's what we mean by that. In James Dobson's book, an excellent book, by the way, if you don't have it, you ought to buy it. The excellent book on Dare to Discipline said, without meaning to oversimplify a very complicated picture, it is accurate to say that many of our difficulties with the present generation of young people began in the tender years of their childhood. That's what we said this morning, wasn't it? Little children are exceedingly vulnerable to the teaching, good or bad, of their guardians, and mistakes made in the early years prove costly indeed. There is a critical period during the first four or five years of a child's life when he can be taught proper attitudes. These early concepts become rather permanent. What he's saying is you've got about five years to completely mold and shape that child's personality and their attitudes. Now, is there more teaching to be done until they're 18 or 20 or whenever they may leave home? Certainly there is. But you're going to, if you don't have that under control by the five-year mark, according to D James Dobson, you're going to have trouble ahead with reference to rearing and training your children. So that's one of the challenges. We have to mold and shape the will of the child. Not an easy task indeed. But while you're trying to mold and shape the child, there's going to be contrary winds that blow against your efforts. If there weren't any contrary winds, you have enough challenge within itself of molding the will of the child. But while you're trying to do that, on the one side, here are the winds that are contrary blowing against you. What kind of contrary winds? Well, we live in a society where there is little respect for authority. There's little respect from the smallest of ages to adulthood with reference to having some respect for authority of the parents, respect for the authority of teachers, respect for authority toward law officers. It's not hard to find. You do a little search on Google and uh, go on the internet and you can find videos of little children, little small toddlers speaking disrespectful to their parents, speaking disrespectful to, uh, to law officers, to teachers and on down the line. What's the problem that's going on? Well, in an article from the Good Men Project, the title of the article was, Wonder Why Your Kid Doesn't Respect Authority? And the answer is, look in the mirror. And so the revelation found from Wendy Mogul's book, The Blessing of a Skin Knee. And she asks why children don't respect authority figures. She gives a surprising insight. 
that when we undermine authority of any authority figure, whether it's a teacher, a cop, or worse, a spouse, or a partner, we're undermining the child's respect for authority, including our own. Now get the point being made, we're going to read further. What she's saying is, you as a parent may be showing disrespect for authority yourself, and what you're teaching your child is to disrespect authority. The article goes on to say, in other words, we love to criticize other people. We don't realize the price we're paying in terms of respect that we lose from our children. Your teacher must be an idiot to give you all that homework, we say, hoping our child to be our child's friend instead of the child's father. Or the cop is a jerk. I was just uh, keeping up with traffic. The lesson the child takes from this sort of venting is that authority figures are stupid and that they're to be safely ignored. There's one problem, fella. You are the authority figure in your child's life, so you're undermining respect for the authority of others and you're destroying your child's authority to respect you. I'll say amen to that. And so we display, we have this, this, this strong wind of res- lack of respect for authority that may even begin in the home that we've created an environment where they don't respect authority. Here's another wind that may be blowing. Contrary to your efforts to mold and shape the child, and that is the questions about God and the Bible that undermines their faith. From the beginning, you're trying to teach them about God, and finally they reach an age where they're accountable and they develop their own faith in God, but they're contrary winds of secular humanism and other matters that undermine the efforts that you have to instill faith in them. Secular humanism is taught in the schools and taught throughout media. By secular humanism, we're talking about a system of thought that is rooted in atheism that says that man, not God, is the supreme being. That's called humanism. Man's thoughts and man's values and man's interests are predominant over any other being. And so whatever you think, however you feel, that's what you go with. So there's been the removal of God, the removal of the Bible, removal of things that are spiritual, and removal of morals. That's the concept of secular humanism. The goals are powerful. That is, the goals of the humanist are powerful and they have powerful influence. It used to be, and I think it still is, we could document a few years back, that the humanists were called into the board meetings of the media. By that I'm talking about television producers of ABC, CBS, and on down the line, to advise them on their sitcoms of how they could instill humanism through the sitcoms. How can we better advance the cause of humanism? How can we make this show go in that direction? So consequently, we have television that belittles God belittles religious people and belittles morals and glorifies immorality, we aren't surprised, are we? The schools teach evolution as a fact. The curriculum sometimes is geared to promote humanistic thought, evidence in the evolution that is taught. Their goals are subtle because we're gradually moving away from God and a religious nation to become more and more of a secular nation and secular people. So consider the changes that have already been seen with reference to humanistic uh, advances. There was a time when God was revered by most people in our society. The Bible was accepted and read. It may not always be followed. But Christians were respected for who they were and the things they stood for. Prayer was in school and people went to church. But not anymore. Now Christianity is belittled. It's ridiculed. The very mentioning of God is forbidden, the Bible is forbidden, the reading of the Bible is forbidden, and so it's very common for many people not to even go to church at all. Less than 7% even attend church at all. 
Faith then is undermined and that challenges your work as a parent. So whether it's in the media, whether it's in the television shows, whether it's in uh, grade school or maybe it's in high school or even in college, there are efforts that are blowing against your children that undermines their faith. More about that here in just a moment. But here's another wind that's blowing that challenges you as you try to rear and shape and mold your child, and that's peer pressure or their friends. We'll say more about that in a moment. I just want to present the problem, and that is we're influenced by our friends and our associates and the crowd that we run with. We recognize that as being a powerful influence. Quite often, a departure of someone who has left the faith, here is a child that by the time they reach adulthood, they've left the faith, and we ask, what on earth happened to them? The answer often is, and correctly so, they got in the wrong crowd. Their peer pressure, they were influenced by others. Here's what they learned from the crowd. Here's what they learned from their friends. They learn attitudes that you don't want them to have. They learn language that you don't want them to speak, and they learn forms of worldliness that you're trying to avoid. And that's a wind blowing contrary. They see their friends do it. They see the crowd doing it. They see even other members of the church doing that. And their children are allowed to go to the dance. Their children are allowed to use this language. Their children are allowed to go to that movie. And consequently, they're being influenced. Your children are being influenced by that kind of peer pressure. Here's another wind that's blowing, as we mentioned this morning, the gender confusion. Your child may have classmates that are transgender, and they now have questions about that. That's something that we didn't face when we were younger. But now our children and our grandchildren may be facing the concept they have a classmate that is transgender. They may be treated in school with a message or maybe it's through their, their uh, sitcom they're watching or it may be through their cartoon. They're treated to a message of normality of the LGBTQI and now A and added to that uh, movement, their concepts. That message is coming through and they're treated to that, and now there is confusion. They may be demanded by their teachers or their coaches to refer to that girl as a boy and that boy as a girl. That gender confusion is a wind blowing contrary to your efforts. And another one is misplaced priorities in our society and sometimes in the home. What do we mean by misplaced priorities? Well, God demands first place. We recognize the principle in Matthew 6, 24, we cannot serve God and mammon. In other words, you can't be a servant of God, but I want to serve the world at the same time. You can't do that. And furthermore, we notice in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, that we must love God above family. He that loves God, uh, father and mother, more than me is not worthy of me, Jesus would say. And then in Matthew chapter 13, in verse 22, the cares of the world can choke out the word of God. All of those we recognize as simple passages telling us that God demands first place. But it's easy to shift emphasis within the family, to things that are not wrong within themselves, where we shift emphasis over here to school and to the homework because that's so important, more so than we do the spiritual matter. We're making sure they make good grades in school, but we're not making sure their spirituality may be developing. Maybe we give emphasis to the job and to the money they, they're making and to the neglect of the spiritual because jobs are so important. Or maybe we give emphasis to material things to the hindrance of our services, our service to the Lord. Or maybe it's sports that interfere with the services, our worship. Or maybe there's greater excitement about the sports they're engaged in than them learning scripture. And so that misplaced emphasis is a contrary wind that's blowing against. Now, here's what we've just seen. 
What we've painted is a picture of the challenges of parenting in a corrupt world. First of all, you're trying to mold and shape a child's will, and that's hard enough within itself, but then there are the contrary winds, and we're just beginning to give a list of the contrary winds blowing against your efforts. So what do you do about that? How do we handle that? What directions does God give for parenting? Well, let's list some of the directions God gives for parenting. Let's begin with this. As a parent... You begin with the attitude that children are a blessing. Begin with the attitude that children are a blessing. Psalm 127 verses 3, 4, and 5 say, Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows in the hand of the mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Now notice particularly verse 1 says, Children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. In other words, children are viewed as a blessing. And thus children being viewed as a blessing, they should not be viewed as a burden or as a curse. There are those who do. There are those who view children as a curse, and thus they abort their children. Others have abandoned their children. Some neglect their children, some abuse their children, and others complain about their children. They're complaining constantly about the fact they have children. Children are getting in the way of what they want to do. And so consequently, they're viewing children as a burden rather than a blessing. But when we view children as a blessing, what that means is they deserve to be loved and to be wanted. Older women are to teach the younger women to love their children, Titus 2 and in verse 4. Rearing children is going to be treated as a privilege. What an honor it is to take this child and mold and shape it in the way of God. God has blessed us with children. We should thank God daily for our children. Thank God that he has blessed us with children and use the utmost care as we mold and shape them because what a blessing it is. Not a burden, not something that should be shunned, but something that we should embrace. So we start with the attitude that children are a blessing. Secondly, as we rear the children, we need to have a purpose and a goal. And what do we mean by that? Well, first we need to determine the way the child should go and then point them in that direction. Rather than having children and then to say, well, whatever happens, happens. Whatever turns out, turns out. But you have a goal in mind. This is where I want to take that child. This is what I want that child to be. Here are passages with which we are familiar. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 22 and in verse 6. Train a child in the way that he should go. Now that's assuming, that passage assumes, you know the way the child should go. So we have the rest of the scriptures, the rest of the Bible that tells us the way that he should go. And how he should live in harmony with the will of God. Being a New Testament Christian, a believer in God, a good citizen, a hard worker, etc. Here's the way the child should go. I have a goal in mind. Now notice in Psalm 34, this is that great psalm that talks about the fear of God. And it says, come my children, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The goal should be, I want children to walk in the fear of God. I don't want to just have children that go to church. I don't want to have children who, who merely have been baptized. I want to have children who walk in the fear of God. And so now the question becomes that I need to always ask is what I'm doing or what I'm allowing or what I'm tolerating, is that helping or is that hindering my goal? I want them to go to heaven. Is this helping that goal? Is this hindering that goal? 
I should never take my eye off of that goal. I'm not just generally raising children. I'm raising children to be, and then you fill in the blank of what that should be, to fear God, to go to heaven, to serve God, to be faithful. We should never assume that everything's going to all be fine. You just raise your children. You just happen to go at it haphazard, and it's all going to turn out fine. We don't have a goal in mind. For the Christian, the one goal supersedes all other goals. So is your goal when you, when you have the child, I want this child to turn out to be uh, a wealthy person. I want it to be a great basketball player, football player, or baseball player, whatever the case may be. Or is it that I want this child to walk in the fear of God? That's my goal that supersedes all other goals. Quite often parents of children who are good are told you're just lucky. You're just really, really lucky you've got good children. You're lucky you have good children. I want to tell you, it's not a matter of luck or a matter of chance. It's a matter of purpose. It's a matter of choice with reference to your children that is relentlessly pursued. They're not just lucky. They've worked hard to have those children. They've worked hard to rear those children. It's not a matter of luck. It's not a matter of chance. But here's something else. God's directions for, for raising our children is, you begin with that attitude, my children are a blessing. I've got a goal or a purpose in mind, but then I need to recognize I need to train those children. Children need to be trained. Children require training. You're not just giving children, they're going to turn out like they should be. They require training. Proverbs 22, 6, you are familiar. Train a child in the way that he should go. He requires training. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, you're to bring fathers to bring their children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That requires training. I want to suggest to you that training animals has many parallels to training children. If you have a dog that you want to train, you have a horse that you want to train, or some other animal you have that you want to train, you begin with the concept that you know what you want it to learn and to do. No one ever sits out, I'm going to train this dog. What are you going to train him to do? I don't know. I'm just going to train him. Well, when you get through with the training, what's he going to be able to, to be doing? I don't know. I'm just going to train him. <laughs> That's not the way you do that. You have a goal in mind. I have something I want him to do or something I want him to be. Furthermore, in training the, for training the animal, you use force, particularly at first. They're forced to do things that they may not want to do otherwise. You patiently guide and correct. It takes a lot of patience to train a dog. It takes a lot of patience to train a horse. It takes a lot of patience to train children. You use principles of reward and punishment. You reward them for the things they do good, and you punish them when they don't do what they're supposed to do. That's how you train a dog. That's how you train a horse. You establish authority and you maintain control. Any one of these guys around here that have trained horses and broke horses will tell you, you show that horse that you are in control and you maintain control and you don't ever let him think he's in control. Same thing with a dog. You begin early. We'll come back to this passage a little bit later, so we'll forego reading it at this point. But you begin early. You don't wait till that dog is 10 years old and say, well, I think I'm going to train him to do some things. Same thing with a horse. You start early. We see parallels in training animals. But I want you to pay attention to three things right here, and we're going to come back to them a little bit later. We train in various ways. And what I mean by that, we train our children by what we teach and what we say to them. 
We tell our children, here's what you need to do, here's what you need to be, here's what I want you to learn. And so we talk to them and we teach them. That's training our children. But that's only part of the way we train our children. We train our children by our example. In fact, that may be more powerful than what we say. I can't hear what you're saying for seeing what you're doing. There's a third way we teach our children, and that's by the things we tolerate and the things we allow. Now, going back to training horses, any of us who have horses know that those who ride their horses and then they allow that horse to get by with things that they ought to be stopping, like eating on the trail, and they tolerate that, they just train that horse to eat on the trail, is what they just did. They said, I, I don't like that. I, I get frustrated with the horse doing that. You'd allowed it. You tolerated it. That's why he does that. And maybe with your children, what they're doing, you're allowing and you're tolerating, you taught it to them. You say, how? By what we tolerate and what we allow. More about that here in just a moment. Now let's talk about, let's amplify this concept of training children. How do you train children? First of all, it involves instructions. Children are to be instructed. They need to be told. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, 6 and in verse 4, bring the children up in the nurture and admonition, or in the instruction, the English standard would say. Children need instruction. You see, the very intellect that enables them to be taught enables them to exercise free will later on. In other words, I want them, when they get to be adults, that they make the free will choice to do what's right. That's going to be based on some instruction we give them. We need to understand that parental control consist, constantly diminishes. That as you start out having complete control of the child, you can pick the child up, force them to do whatever you want them to do, but that control diminishes over time. And it's going to continue to diminish. So unless God's control through instruction of his word is established, established their lives are going to be out of control. Have you known of people that didn't teach their children and now their children are adults? And their lives are out of control. Timothy had strong faith, you'll remember. Long after he was out of the control of his mother and his grandmother. He was well gone from their, their physical control. And he had the faith that first dwelt in his mother and in his grandmother. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 3. The faith in older children is the result of their early training and early instruction. So he said, I'd like when my child reaches college to have strong faith. You better start early, better start very young. Teaching them the way of the Lord. They need instruction. They need instruction. Parents should take advantage of every opportunity for instruction. Maybe sermons, maybe classes. And even that's not enough. I'm appalled at children who are raised by parents or parents who are raising children. He said, I want my child to know the Bible. But they never bring them to Bible class. I want them to know the Bible, but they don't bring them through a gospel meeting where there's sermon after sermon being preached and sermons being taught. Here's something else about training. Training involves discipline. Now let's get our Bibles and go to the book of Proverbs for a moment and let's look at some Old Testament references, several in Proverbs, about training children. And these we ought to be familiar with already. And if not, then we need to get familiar with them now. Again, I mention and don't apologize for repeating the fact the greatest book I read in rearing children was the book of Proverbs. It helped me as much as any in the rearing of our children. Go to Proverbs 19 and in verse 18. What we learn is that we need to begin early. Chasten your son while there is hope. And do not be set on his, your heart on his destruction. 
You chasten them while you can still mold and shape them before it's too late. Remember the four to five years that Bobson talked about? Don't wait till they're seven or eight years old and say, you know what, we need to be teaching them to have a right attitude. Too late, too late. You begin early. That discipline should begin early. Let's go to the 13th division and in verse 24. And this should be driven by love. Any discipline, any correction should be driven by love, not out of anger. When we discipline our children out of anger, we're apt to say or to do something that's more destructive than instructive. Look at chapter 13, verse 24. He who spares his, his rod hates his son, but he that loves him disciplines him promptly. It should be driven by love. Same verse now. Here's the third point about discipline. Discipline should act promptly. Go back to that same verse. He that, um, he that loves him disciplines him promptly. Now let's do a little work on this word promptly. Strong says the word means it comes from the dawn or from early at a task or by implication earnestness by extension to seek for with pains giving. In the King James it's translated betimes, inquire earlier or to rise or to seek diligently or earlier in the morning. So what does that mean? Well, let's go a little bit further. The Young's literal translation says he, he hastens to chastisement or he chastens him early. He disciplines him diligently. He does that promptly. The one who loves the child disciplines him early. Be times, the King James would say. He would do that promptly. Cal and Datelich, we quoted from this morning. We use them again this evening. That that word translated promptly does not denote early morning of the day, but the morning of life. It's not saying you discipline your child at 8 o'clock in the morning, 7 o'clock in the morning, don't wait till the evening, but early in life you discipline them. The earlier the fruit, the better the training. A father who truly wishes well to his son keeps him betimes under strict discipline to give him while he is yet capable of being influenced the right direction and allow no errors to root themselves in him. But he who is indulgent toward his child when he ought to be strict acts as if he wished his ruin. Well said by Cal and Dalich. Now let's go to Proverbs 22 and in verse 15. We're still listing some principles of discipline. The discipline should correct the behavior. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. But the rod will drive it far from him. The rod is spanking. So you take that switch to them and that will correct that behavior. It may not the first time. It may not even the second time. But consistently it eventually takes place. So it should correct the behavior. And furthermore... The discipline should have their future in mind. Not just correcting the immediate circumstance, but what will this child be two years from now, five years from now, ten years, or twenty years from now? What are they going to be? Let's look at Proverbs 23. While you're in the book of Proverbs, jump over to chapter 23, look at verses 13 and 14. Do not withhold correction from the child, but if you beat him with the rod, he will not die. But if you beat him with the rod, you'll deliver his soul from Sheol. You're going to prevent some problems in the future is the point that's being made. Same principle could be found in Hebrews chapter 12 and in verse 11. Still listing some, some principles of training. We need to be careful of what we tolerate and what we allow. Careful of what we tolerate and what we allow. Let me give you an example of that. In Judges 14, without turning there, you remember that Samson's parents tolerated his marriage to a Philistine woman. You ought not be marrying a Philistine woman. That was forbidden by Exodus 34. He said he wanted this woman of Timnah, he said. 
They argued with him, said no, but then they went and got it for her, went and got her for him. And so they tolerated that. And you recognize now the problems that were created because of their tolerance. So that means we need to be careful of what we allow our children to do. We need to be careful of where we allow them to go. We may allow them to go places that we don't really like them going, but we tolerated that. We need to be careful of what we don't correct. Here is something we didn't correct. We didn't tell them it was wrong. We didn't tell them they shouldn't have done that. We tolerated that. We need to be careful about that. We need to be careful of what we may not approve and even say we think is wrong, but we allow it with a reference to our children. Well, I told them they shouldn't do it. I told them they, they, I didn't like it, but then we tolerated that with our children. Have you see what happened in the case of Samson? We need to be watchful of decisions that we make. We see that principle in Proverbs 12 and verse 26 about their time, about their schedules, about what we allow them to do as far as work, about what we do with our work schedule. We need to be very careful. So we need to be tolerant. That's part of training the child, being careful of what we allow and what we tolerate. We need to warn them of dangers. That's part of training a child, warn them of dangers. Parents need to warn their children of dangers that are ahead. That's part of bringing a child up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians chapter 6. That's part of training them in the way they should go. Proverbs 22 and verse 6. And a watchman is one who warns. You remember Ezekiel talked about being a watchman and God told Ezekiel to warn the people. That's what a watchman does. You are the watchman for your child. So that means you need to warn them about some things. Like what? Well, we must prepare them for the challenges that are ahead. We need to warn them of the, what they're going to face in school. If you send your child to public school, you need to warn them about evolution, about moral relativism. They're going to be bombarded with that. Warn them about that. Tell them about the dangers of that so they'll recognize that error when it's taught. You need to warn them about the challenges of college because there will be attacks on their faith in college. It doesn't matter if it's a local community college or a great university. Your child in college is going to have some attacks on their faith. Some things that undermine their faith. Some questions raised about is the Bible the Word of God or are there lost books of the Bible? Is it the inspired Word of God or is it all inspired or is it, is it literal or not? They're going to face challenges to their faith. Warn them about those challenges. Prepare them ahead of time. Warn them about loose thinking and laxness among brethren. If your child grows up and reaches adulthood, and they're Christians now, and you send them off in the world, whether it's to college or they're married and moving somewhere else, and they think because it has Church of Christ over the building, and they ask, are they institutional? And they say, no, that it's a good church. You've had your head buried in the sand. Because there's some problems among non-institutional churches of Christ. Forget the institutional folks. Just among us, there's a lot of problems. And so if you send your children out in the world and they think one church that is non-institutional is good as another church that's non-institutional, your child is apt to go astray. Warn them about the laxness among brethren. Warn them about the dangers of divorce and remarriage and fellowship. Some of the issues that are circulating among us today. Warn them about those kinds of things. Warn them of dangers of some careers. That if you choose that career, that may hinder your faith. That may be detrimental to your faith. You might want to choose a different career. We need to warn them of dangers. Here's something else about training our children. We need to set proper examples before our children. You see, children learn from what they see their parents do. 
You see in Matthew chapter 5 that examples are powerful. In fact, so powerful that Jesus talked about in the preamble of the constitution of the church, which is what the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is all about. That he talks about the powerful example of those who are citizens of the kingdom. We're like light and we're like salt. Talks about the powerful example that they see your good works and they glorify God because of what they see in you. Examples indeed are powerful. Timothy learned from some powerful examples of his mother and his grandmother. 2 Timothy 1, 5 and 3 and 15. Kings often were just like their dads. Without turning back to 1 Kings, Jehoshaphat, you remember, learned from Asa how he ought to live and he lived just like Asa. You remember that. And you remember the same thing was true with Ahaziah, that he, was, he saw Ahab's ways and he learned them according to 1 Kings chapter 22, 51 and 52. And on we could go compounding that. After all, actions speak louder than words. It's not surprising when children turn out to be just like their parents. Let's go to Proverbs 20 and in verse 7. I said we'd look at Proverbs. Let's go again to the book of Proverbs 20 and in verse 7. The text says, in Proverbs 20 and verse 7, the righteous man walks in his integrity. Here's a righteous man doing what's right, living right, and his children are blessed after him. Now, what's the connection? He's a righteous man and his children are blessed after him. His children learn from him. His children often turn out to be just like he was. In fact, the proverb says in Ezekiel 16, 44, you've heard many times, like mother, like daughter. Children turn out to be just like their parents set before them. Well, that's what's involved in training. And we're still listing God's directions. Begin with the attitude. The children are a blessing, have a purpose and a goal. Train the children and watch the influence of their friends. Parents need to be careful. Parents need to be watchful. That's part of teaching them the fear of God. Deuteronomy 4, Psalm 34. Talk about teaching the children. Teach them the fear of the Lord. If you're going to teach your children to fear God, you need to teach them about their friends. Eli wasn't watchful as he should be with reference to his children. You remember, he didn't restrain them as he should. He wasn't keeping a watchful eye on his children. We see that in 1 Samuel chapter 3, chapter 2, and in verse 12. It's part of walking circumspectly to watch and be careful. So here's what we need to keep an eye on as parents. We need to keep an eye on who their friends are. So as they begin to have circles of friends, whether it's friends among members of the church, our friends of the world are friends at school. We need to keep an eye on that. Let's go back again to the Proverbs and see if this doesn't remind us as parents. I need to watch who their friends are because friends influence them. That's where they learn some of their attitudes. That's where they learn some of their language. That's where they learn some of their concepts. That's where they learn about worldliness, often from their friends. Proverbs 12, 26 says, the righteous should choose his friends carefully. You want your child to be righteous. So teach them to be very careful in choosing their friends. Tell them why, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. You need to keep an eye on who their friends are. Let's go to the 22nd division of Proverbs. And notice verse 24 and 25. Make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man do not go. Verse 25 is powerful because it says, lest you learn his ways and he set a snare for your soul. I want to remind you something I've said many times in dealing with this verse, and don't apologize for repeating time and again, 
that it's interesting this verse is not saying don't go with a drunkard lest you become like a drunkard. Don't go with a murderer lest you be a murderer. Don't go with an adulterer lest you be an adulterer. But don't go with an angry man. A man with a bad attitude lest you learn his ways. Now if I'm going to learn the ways of a man with a bad attitude, how much more so the one who's totally immoral. We need to keep an eye not only who their friends are, but who's influencing them. And I cite 1 Corinthians 15, 33, be not deceived, evil communications corrupts good manners. That's not even in the context of friends, not even, not even remotely in the context of friends. It's in the context of teachers who are false teachers. Who's influencing your children? Where do you send them to school? Who's teaching them? Maybe it's a member of the church that's teaching them. What are they teaching them? Are they teaching them some misconcept about Genesis? Are they teaching them the serpent wasn't real? That's happened in the classroom among Christians. Are they teaching them the days of creation are not literal? That's happened in classrooms where Christians were teaching. Are they teaching that we can fellowship anyone and everyone as long as we have generally the same concept and we can disagree over doctrine? That's been taught in some classrooms. Who's teaching your children? What are they teaching them? What are their concepts? But here's something else. God's direction says, give them affection. Give them affection. You see, training and instruction must be administered with love. They deserve to be loved. Older women teach younger women to love their children. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24 says, he that loves his children disciplines them betimes or promptly. I want to tell you that children will forgive many mistakes if they are assured that you have love for them. And mark it down, you as a parent are going to make some mistakes. There will be mistakes you make, and, and you're going to, to do something wrong, you're going to say something wrong, but children will be forgiving if, it, if they are assured that you love them. Someone once said that affection without firmness is disastrous, but equally disastrous is firmness without affection. You look at someone and they're showing great affection for the child, but they're not, not firm at all. You say, well, they're, they're not raising their child properly. But if you're over here firm with your child and you're not showing love and affection, it's just as equally disastrous. Affection is demonstrated by the time we have for our children. Do your children know that you have time no matter what? No matter what demands you have that you can stop and you have time for your children. Are you too busy for your children? 1,500 children were surveyed and they were asked, what do you think makes a happy family? The answer they gave was doing things together. Doing things together. Graduate students at the University of Chicago were asked where they got their major ideas about morals and religion. And the response was through conversation in our family at mealtime. Do you have time to sit down at a meal and just talk about your day as a family? And maybe instruct a little bit, maybe give some basic principles to your children. Are you too busy for that? Children deserve affection. And then finally, if you want to rear your children as God directs, you're going to spend some time praying. We ought to be thankful and thank God daily for our children. If we stop and thank God for our children, 
that drives an attitude in our mind wherein we're going to seek to rear them properly. But I want to tell you that we need to, this is a time when we need to be praying for wisdom in rearing our children. If any lack wisdom, let him ask of God. James 1 and verse 5 says, Pray to God every day, help me have the wisdom to know what to do and when to do it. To know when to be firm and when to back off. When to spank and when not to spank. When to command and condemn and when to console and when to comfort. It's not always easy to know. Ask God to give you the wisdom to see that. And if you do that, you follow the directions. You say, I'm going to begin with this attitude. My children are a blessing. And I've got a goal in mind of what I want them to be. And I'm going to train them according to those rules we just listed. And I'm going to watch the influence of their friends. And I'm going to show them affection. And I'm going to pray. Then you're rearing your children as God directs. Parenting as God directs. There are challenges to being a parent. It's not any harder now than it was in earlier days. I'm convinced. My grandmother used to say that the world's, and, uh, the world's worse now than it's ever been. Really? I don't think so. There's more than eight righteous souls sitting right here. And in Noah's day, there was only eight righteous souls, including himself. We got more than eight right here. I don't think the world's worse than it's ever been. I don't think that rearing children is worse than it's ever been. Would you like to read your children in the days of Noah? I don't think so. I'd like to rear my children in an environment where you've got godly people around. You do have that. May God help us to rear our children as God directs. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?